All right, if you would, let's turn back once again to Revelation chapter 5. And our subject this evening will be really the title for each message in this particular chapter. It'll be entitled, Worthy is the Lamb. Worthy is the Lamb. Uh, You'll recall that in chapter 4, we really had set before us a prophetical scene, or a scene that was showing to us prophecy. And it was set in the sight and also in the hearing of John. Uh, John, we were told, had a sight of God. He had a sight of the throne of God. He saw God as the creator. He saw God not only as the creator, but he who was sovereign over all things. He saw God as, if you will, the king. He saw God upon a throne that was no ordinary throne. It was a throne that could only be described as a throne of glory. But upon that throne of glory was also a throne of government, which tells us that this is not just a God who is a glorious God, but a God who governs and rules over all things. Surrounding that throne, we were introduced to a number of holy things and holy representatives, holy creatures, holy angels, uh, the 20 and four elders, and we saw what they were doing. They were giving adoration, they were giving reverence, but most importantly, they were giving praise and worship to he who is seated upon the throne. In chapter 5, if we were to uh, simplify this, my intention is not to water this down, but if we were to simplify what John is now seeing, he's still seeing that same throne. He's still seeing all the same attendants around the throne, but now he begins to see and begins to hear and will soon understand the counsels and the decrees of God that are being set before him. It's described as those decrees and those counsels being contained in a book. Now your translation, depending upon what you have, it may use the word scroll, uh, but the book or the scroll is now becomes part of the narrative. It becomes part of what John is seeing. It's set before him and it's set before John. The counsels and the decrees of God are contained in a book. They're contained in a scroll. You notice in the very first verse that it's in the right hand of him that sat on the throne, this book. This book is described as having writing within and on the backside. There is writing on the front. There's writing on the back. But it's also sealed. It is sealed with seven seals, which again, seven throughout Scripture is the number of completion or the number of perfection. If we were to break this chapter down into really two main headings, the first one would deal with is verses one through five, which is a book that is sealed in the hand of God. Verses six through 14 would be a book to be unsealed and opened by the hand of Christ, the Redeemer. So two headings, verses 1 through 5, a book sealed in the hand of God. The second heading, verses 6 through 14, a book to be unsealed and opened by the hand of Christ, 
the Redeemer. In Revelation 5, there is really one message, one vision that John is relating to us. It is that everything God has for men is found in the Lamb. It's found in the Lamb. It's provided by the Lamb. It's revealed through the Lamb. And it shall bring praise to the Lamb of God. Revelation 5 brings all glory, all praise, all honor to the Lamb. Everything that God gives to sinners, everything God has given to you and I as sinners, has come through the Lamb, the Lord Jesus Christ. It has not come through our goodness. It has not come through our merits. It's not come through our righteousness. It's not come through our family associations. It's not come through our church. It's not come through our baptisms. It's come through the Lamb. The central figure here is, is of course, he who sits upon the throne. We do see God, the Father there, but then we also now see the Lamb, the Son. Everything comes through the Lamb. All that God receives from sinners, everything that the sinner is, comes through Christ. Now we saw in chapter number 4 that John saw the sovereign majesty. He recognized the government. He recognized the triune God. We saw in the scriptures there, we saw God the Father, we saw God the Son, we saw God the Spirit, and how all three of the Godhead played a role in creation. But in chapter 5, he tells us now the sovereign majesty of the triune God and the redemption of sinners. We see God in creation, but now we're beginning to see God in his sovereign majesty and the redemption of sinners. God the Father, God the Son, God the Spirit all play a role in the redemption of sinners. The things that John is going to hear and see can be described in these 14 verses. Again, our intent tonight is only to go through the first five. But if I was to break these things down into what John will see and what John heard, it is these six things. First of all, in the first part of verse 1, he sees the throne of God. The throne of God continues to be in his immediate vision. It is what he continues to see. The throne of God has not passed away. It has not moved out of the scene. He still sees the throne of God. In the second half of verse 1 down through verse 4, he sees the book of God, or as we said, the scroll. In verse 5, he hears who is worthy to open the book. Specifically, only one is determined and worthy to open the book. Number four, covering verses five through seven, he saw the Lamb of God open the book. Number five, verses eight through 12, he saw and heard the song of the redeemed. And then number six, and probably one of the most Fascinating to me when we get to it. Verses 13 through 14, he saw the purpose of God. So we see, he sees the throne. He sees the book. He hears who is worthy to open the book. He sees the Lamb of God open the book. He sees and hears the song of the redeemed. And then we finish the chapter 
by John seeing the purpose of God. Now, if we expound these verses as we do each and every week, let's consider this first thing that John saw and heard, the first part of verse 1. John saw the throne of God. The central object of John's vision that's been related to us in chapter 4 and chapter 5 is the throne of God. We need to keep in mind that the throne of God was constantly filling John's vision. He continually not only sees the throne, but he sees him that sits upon that throne. His eyes are always seeing the throne of God and he who is seated upon that throne. In these two chapters, chapters 4 and 5, he calls our attention to the throne and to he who sits upon the throne. I counted 17 times in chapter 4 and 5. In some way, shape, or form, he's calling our attention to the throne. Obviously, the throne is of central importance. We saw last week how the throne of God is the symbol of divine sovereignty. How it is the very center of everything. It is where the providences of God are carried out. It is where the counsel of God is carried out. It's where the decrees of God. It all emanates from the throne of God. It doesn't come from some random location, some random place. It emanates from the throne of God. In chapter 4, we also saw that John described what can only be described as the incomparable glory. The glory of the triune God, the Father, the Son, and the Spirit. In chapter 5, he now sees a mediator. He sees a lamb. He sees in the midst of the throne of God, he sees how God makes himself known to man. God makes himself known to man through the mediator, through the lamb, which is, in fact, the Lord Jesus Christ. How a sinner knows about God is through the Lamb. Everything we understand about our redemption is through the Lamb. It's through Christ Himself. It's not through our intellect. It's not through our wisdom. It is through the Lamb of God that redeems sinners. See their need. The Lamb is... God, the Lamb, is Jesus Christ Himself. As always, the throne of God, we have to keep in mind, is a symbol of sovereignty. Sovereignty demonstrates to us God's symbol of God's supreme majesty and universal power. Much of our call to worship of Job 37 was one of Job's friends describing the creation of God and who God is, what God has done, his wondrous works and what God has shown to man. The throne of God must be kept in mind as the place of supreme majesty, universal power, but it's also the place of authority. We cannot have a throne of God that is just simply powerful but not authoritative. It is the center of power, it is the center of authority, and it's the center of dominion. It should never be forgotten, and even in our, in our Christian, Christian lives should we ever forget that our God is seated upon a throne. And that to draw our attention to that throne 17 times is not just for trivia, or so that we might be able to answer a question. 
but it's intentional to continue to drive us back to the supremacy and the sovereignty of God who is seated upon that throne. So we never leave the throne room of God. No matter how far we get in the book of Revelation, don't ever lose the sight and the sounds of the throne of God and what's happening there. Because it is the very center of everything that is taking place. What do we know about this throne? Of course, we've seen in chapters 4 and 5, we do know that God rules all things in total sovereignty. But the Bible also tells us that this sovereign throne, and this is fascinating to me, and is a, is a source of rejoicing for us, is that this throne is a throne of grace. Hebrews 4, verse 16 probably the passage that most points us to the reality of the throne of grace, but we never get weary of hearing these words. Hebrews 4.16 says, Let us therefore come boldly unto the throne of grace that we may obtain mercy and find grace to help in a time of need. How encouraging is it to know that the sovereign majesty, the sovereign throne of God is a place of grace where grace is dispensed, where grace is granted. God's grace, think about this, God's grace originates at the throne of God. God's grace originates at the throne of God. Grace is not a nebulous idea. Grace is not something that just takes on a form from some random place in the universe. It originates from the very throne that John is describing. Grace originates at the throne. Grace is not only does it originate there, that's where it's given from. Where does grace come from? It comes from the throne of God. Grace is dispensed from God's throne. What does grace do? Grace is what brings sinners to the throne of God. What an amazing thought. Grace originates at the throne. It's dispensed from the throne. The very thing that originates and dispensed from the throne of God is what brings sinners to the throne. That's grace. See, God's doing it all. God's the originator of grace. He's also the dispenser of it, and it's grace that draws us to the throne. You're not drawn to the throne naturally. You're not drawn to God in your humanity. You're drawn to God by God's free grace. This throne is a place of beauty. The attendants that are attending that around that throne, we described some of those last week. But our God, a sovereign God, is a gracious God. People often say, I'm thankful for God's sovereignty, and I'm thankful for God's sovereignty, but I'm thankful for God's, you know where I'm going, right? God's sovereign grace. Because it's within God's sovereign grace that now the power and the authority and the dominion and the right to dispense grace is coming from He who alone is sovereign. Nobody else can dispense grace. Grace doesn't originate with any other human being. Grace originates with God. And it's His sovereign grace that draws the sinner to the throne. We could... Give God a lot of praise for who He is. But at the end of it all, God is gracious. God is great. He's always good. 
He's almighty. He's forgiving. And I'm thankful for this one. He's merciful. See, God's sovereign grace is filled with mercy. God exercises His sovereign power and authority to accomplish His purpose. The accomplishment of your salvation is directly related to God's sovereign power, His sovereign grace that's been extended to His elect. So you and I are trophies of grace. We are trophies of God's sovereign, all-powerful grace that originated the throne of God, is dispensed from the throne of God, and drew us to Him. John sees the throne of God, the throne of all sovereignty, and the throne of all grace. Which leads us to the second thought that John sees or John saw the book of God. This book is described in more detail as we go along further, but notice what we are told. I saw in the right hand of him that sat on the throne a book written within and on the backside sealed with seven seals. It is in the right hand of the Father lies a book, or again, your translation may say a scroll. And this book or this scroll is representative of the eternal plan of God. Within that book, God's decrees are contained. This book is all comprehensive. In other words, there is nothing that is left out. There is nothing that is not in this book. This book is God's decrees. It's God's counsel. It's the, 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 the acknowledgement of who God is, God's purposes, what God is doing in this world. This book symbolizes the purpose of God with respect to the entire universe throughout all of human history. This is no ordinary book. Now, this is not like a book you go and pull off a library shelf and you may be filled with knowledge you didn't know about before. It's not like a book you go to a bookstore and purchase and maybe it entertains you. This is the book of God's decrees. This is the book that as each seal is opened, God's purposes and God's plans are being carried out. In other words, this book doesn't stay sealed. These seals, not to get too far ahead of myself, are going to be broken. And when those seals are broken, God's plan is being carried out. This is what John sees. John sees the book of God. It concerns all creatures in all ages of all eternity. Now it's interesting, and we'll talk about this in a moment. It has writing on both sides. This book is pictured as being sealed with seven seals. Again, there's that seven, the number of completion, the number of perfection. These seals most likely were arranged in a row on the outside of the scroll or the book. So when viewed, they sealed the scroll's enclosure, what was on the inside. The closed scroll is indicative of something. It is indicative of the plan of God, yet still unrevealed and unexecuted. 
In other words, as long as those seals are still sealed, that particular aspect of God is not yet fully revealed or is it executed to its full extent. If that scroll remains sealed, if it stays sealed and it's never, the seals are never broken, God's purposes are never realized and God's plan is never carried out. So do you imagine that those seven seals are going to stay sealed or are they going to be broken? They're going to be broken. But as long as the seals are sealed, God's plan, this is important, remains unrevealed and unexecuted. His plan is not going to be carried out until these seals are broken. Now, verse 2 gives us further details. And I saw a strong angel proclaiming with a loud voice. Try to envision this scene. Who is worthy to open the book and to loose the seals thereof? Now, the opening of that scroll required the breaking of the seals. Now, it's important to understand that the breaking of the seals is not merely just to reveal the contents of the book, but rather it's to reveal the contents and to carry out God's purposes and God's plan. In other words, this is not just a curiosity breaking of the seals. I want to know what's in the book. No, when these seals are broken... Not only is God's plan revealed, but the broken seal tells us that the plan is now being executed. In other words, the seals are not just broken and then nothing's done. When the seal is broken, there's there's revelation, but there's also the completion of it. These seals are very important to the plan of God. Notice it is a strong angel. We're not told much about this angel other than the fact he is a strong angel. And he asks a question that is more in the light of a rhetorical question, but he asks a question, who is worthy? Now, we are looking at this today and we're thinking about it. And of course, we're all answering the question from a human perspective. Who's open to wor- open to, who's worthy to open these books? Nobody in this room, I think, is prideful enough to say I am. Nobody in this room is prideful enough to say, well, yes, I think God would be impressed with me enough to allow me the privilege of opening that particular seal. The problem is, even if you could open up the seal, you can't carry out the plan that's on the inside of it. So when he says who's worthy to open the book and to loose the seals thereof, he's not only asking who can break the seal, but who can carry out the plan that's revealed inside of that scroll. You see the beauty of this. Because this strong angel proclaims with a loud voice, our assumption is is that this voice is loud enough and bold enough and strong enough that every creature can hear this invitation to whoever whoever feels they're worthy to come and do it, come do it. If anybody thinks they're capable, if any creature in the world is capable of explaining or carrying out God's counsels, let him go ahead and come forward and attempt to do it. (laughs) Again, and only the pride-filled man even begins to suggest, I'll do it. This question being asked by the strong angel 
is answered really by John telling us what the response was in verse 3. No man, no man in heaven, nor in earth, neither under the earth, was able to open the book, watch this, neither to look thereon. There has never been nor ever will be a man or a creature who is able to open the book and is even able to look inside of that book to even see what's in it. Are you feeling small and insignificant yet? I do. But I'm also humbled and I'm thankful that God was mindful of my eternal soul. Because what I see now is I see the worthiness of God and I see my own unworthiness and I feel more unworthy than I've ever felt before. I'm not worthy to open a book. I'm not worthy to break a seal. I'm not even worthy enough to look inside of that book that concerns even my very redemption. And you'll notice, and I think this is instructive, not only was there no man, but nobody around that throne, none of the angels, even though they're seated right in front of the throne, none of those elders, none of those that were surrounding the throne could do it. All the things that they knew, everything that they saw, they were not able to break the seal or to even look in them. Now, I think this goes one step further. Not only could they not break the seal and even look, I'm not, I, I, they could not even understand everything that's in that book. See, the reality is, is we think all we need is just a glance and we'll understand God's decrees. We'll understand God's counsels. Folks, there are things about God in this life you are never going to come to full terms of understanding. And it's the epitome of pride to think we can fully fathom all of God's decrees and all of God's counsels. But what we are seeing here is that we are not left without hope because although the angel announces and asks the question, who is worthy, nobody is worthy, the wisest person can't, the most righteous person can't, God's prophets were not even... The Apostle Paul was not worthy to open this. Moses was not worthy to open this. David's not worthy to open this. Think of all the people in the Bible. None of them are worthy to open the book. And this is instructive. Notice John's response. And I wept much. Why was he crying? Why was he weeping? Look what he says. Because no man was found worthy to open and to read the book, neither to look thereon. This caused John to weep. That no man was able. Now, we read this, I wept much. We are to presume that John is weeping in an audible fashion. Now, I think we will understand John's tears more if we fully and keep in mind the vision that's set before us. Remember I said, keep that throne ever before our eyes. Keep, 
he who sits upon the throne ever before our eyes. But I also want you to think about the beauty of the scroll in the right hand. And I want you to think about the reality that within that scroll, within that book, is the entirety of God's decrees and counsels. Which means that the very execution of God's plan is contained within those seven seals. That plan includes even our very redemption. Contained in a book. This is not a random book. But the execution of God's plan is in that scroll. When that scroll is opened and those seals are broken, the very universe that's governed is being governed by a sovereign God of grace. I think there's been over many, many years, I think there's been a, in some ways, I think it's been an ignorant moving away, but in many times I think it's also been an intentional moving away from the glory of God's throne. And we have forgotten the holiness of God and we've forgotten about the reality that everything that happens, everything that will happen is being carried out by the sovereign decrees and the sovereign providential hand of God. And we have turned God into just something that we access when we're in trouble. He's just somebody we turn to when life's not going our way. And we forget about the sovereign hand of God who is unsealing and executing everything that takes place in this life. And that there has never been a single person alive who's worthy to even give a single piece of counsel towards how that sovereign God executes his plan. How pridefully do we go to God and tell God what we want God to do? God, I want you to. When all we, would, all we should be saying, God, make your will my will. Proper prayer is not about getting what you want. It's about accepting God's sovereign will and His purposes and His plans because it is impossible for you and I to fully fathom His plan as it's being executed. And yet, we become such Bible scholars in our own minds that we dogmatically stand up and we say, here's what God is doing and I know what God's up to and I know what's coming next. When all we should be doing is laying on our face before God and saying, God, I'm not even worthy to look at this book. But yet, we're going to tell God and counsel Him what He needs to do. Or that we could think that in our humanity and our depravity that we would go to that throne of grace without His plan drawing us to that throne. That's how highly we think of ourselves if we thought we took ourselves to the throne of grace. No, he drew us there. John is weeping because of the vision. He's weeping because of the beauty. God's redemptive and glorious purpose is being realized. His plan is being carried out. And the contents of the scroll come to pass in the history of the universe. But you realize there are things contained within that book, things contained within that scroll, that if those seals are not opened, there are things that would come to us 
things that you and I could never endure, things that we could not even begin to even understand. Within that book, there's protection for the children of God. Within that book, there is judgment that is going to fall upon those who are persecuting the people of God. That book contains everything. That book is the decrees and counsels of God. If those seals are not broken, if that book is not opened, there is no ultimate victory for us as believers. There is no new heaven. There is no new earth. There is no future inheritance. Because remember, this book is not just a book to read. This is actually God's plan being carried out. But notice how quickly John's tears are turned to encouragement. Third heading, verse 5. John hears or heard who was worthy to open the book. Verse 5 says, And one of the elders said unto me, Weep not. Behold, the lion of the tribe of Judah, the root of David, hath prevailed to open the book and to loose the seven seals thereof. Now it's not an angel speaking. Now we're told it is an elder speaking. And he says, The elder says unto me, Weep not. Not an angel, not one of the four beasts, but who's described as an elder, most likely one who had experienced the very effects of redemption himself, he conveys to John the message of that book. I love what he says. The lion of the tribe of Judah, the root of David, hath prevailed. Now again, your translation may say, has conquered. Who has conquered? The lion of the tribe of Judah. The root of David has prevailed. This is a reference to Christ has conquered sin. He's cron- he has conquered death. He has prevailed. The great obstacle between God and man has been removed. What is that great obstacle? The sin that separated us. Christ is the one. The blood has been shed. The victory over sin, the victory over Satan, death, and hell has been achieved. These are beautiful names that are given to Christ. Not only is the lamb mentioned, but he's mentioned as the lion of the tribe of Judah and the root of David. Why is he called the lion out of the tribe of Judah? This refers to Christ's human nature, which is a direct reference to, to Genesis 49, verses 8 through 10. And here's what that says. This is not just a a title that's randomly thrown out there, but this is a reference all the way back to the first book of the Bible. Genesis 49, verses 8 through 10. It says, Judah, thou art he whom thy brethren shall praise. Thy hand shall be in the neck of thine enemies. Thy father's children shall bow down before thee. Judah is a lion's whelp from the prey, my son. Thou art gone up. He stooped down. He couched as a lion. And as an old lion, who shall rouse him up? The scepter, the kingdom, shall not depart from Judah, nor a lawgiver from between his feet until Shiloh come, and unto him shall the gathering of the people 
be. There is a reference here uh, made to Christ as the line of the tribe of Judah. There's a reference to a scepter, which is a rod that is used by a king. There is a, a, a reference up to Shiloh, which in most commentators believe that this means to him who the kingdom belongs. This is a promise that one day all nations are going to submit to Jesus Christ as Lord. What an amazing thought. The lion referring to Christ in his human nature. In conquering Satan and bearing the full burden of the wrath of God to the uttermost, he proved himself to be that lion. But then he's also referred to as the root of David. You know, the beauty about even though he is the root of David is the fact that he was also David's Lord. We often forget this, but it mentions to us in the New Testament book of Matthew, the 22nd chapter, with reference to Christ being David's Lord. What an amazing thought this is. Matthew 22, verse 41. While the Pharisees were gathered together, Jesus asked them, by the way, this is the most important question that can be asked of any human being. What think ye of Christ? You know, that's the key to all of humanity. What do you think about Christ? Not what denomination are you? Not what's your church affiliation? What think ye of Christ? Now notice who's asking the questions. The Pharisees were gathered together saying, and then Jesus asked them, what think ye of Christ? Whose son is he? They say unto him, the son of David. Now watch Jesus. He saith unto them, how then doth David in spirit call him Lord, saying, The Lord said unto my Lord, Sit thou on my right hand till I make thine enemies thy footstool. If David then call him Lord, how is he his son? And no man was able to answer him a word. Neither durst any man from that day forth ask him any more questions. The prophets had written about this Lord, about this Christ. Christ, of course, is a reference to being God's anointed. The Pharisees were answering that he is the promised king of David, but it was not, the Pharisees were not prepared for what, what Christ would actually say next. Both times we see this word Lord is translated from the same Greek word, but in the Hebrew text, which Jesus quotes, the first is God's name, Jehovah. The second is a title that means my master. David, who was called and anointed by God as the king of Israel, addresses the Messiah as his king. Even David recognized the Messiah. The root of David primarily refers to his divine nature, to which David himself owed his very origin. The beauty of Romans or Revelation 5 as we continue with this is to keep in mind exactly what's, what John is seeing and what John is hearing. But notice that last phrase in verse 5 of Revelation. He hath prevailed 
to open the book and to loose the seven seals thereof. The very execution, the very uh, unwrapping of God's decree and the victory of his people depend squarely on what the lion, what the root of David does. Jesus Christ is the key that opened up the entire plan of God to be executed and completed. Literally no other person, no angel, no human being, no other creature is qualified to bring salvation other than Jesus Christ himself. The very execution of God's decree, God's plan, depend upon what Jesus did. He conquered this world. He prevailed. He's overcome. But in a mystery, he's also referred to as that suffering servant we read about in Isaiah 53. But I want us to think about the worthiness of the Lamb. I want us to think about his worthiness to open that book. On the cross, the lion, the lion of Judah, the root of David, conquered and thereby earned the very right to open the book and to break the seals. He's the one that's opening the book. He's the one that's breaking the seals. He is ruling in accordance to God's plan. Remember when Jesus was on this earth, he said, I came to do my Father's will. We certainly know he came to the, went to the cross, did his Father's will. But do you realize he's carrying out the plan of his Father even throughout the execution of the entire sovereignty of the universe? One day, every knee is going to bow and every tongue is going to confess that Jesus Christ is Lord. Not just believing tongues, Every tongue will confess that Jesus Christ is Lord. He indeed is worthy. Worthy is the Lamb to open the book. I trust this will encourage us as we think about this this week. If you want to read ahead, I would encourage you to keep reading through, meditate on what we've talked about tonight, read through verses 6 through 14. I don't know if we'll get through all of that next week, but I want you to think about now that book being opened and Read what is happening there, again, with the throne of God at the very center of everything that we see. Let's conclude by singing an old familiar hymn on 206. 206, let's stand together. Actually, I think I've got the wrong page on that. 209, yeah, 209, Rock of Ages. Let's stand as we sing.